This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Today, we just had an amazing conversation with Mike Funk, Vice President, Office of Health Affairs and Advocacy for Humana. Daniel, I I just think about our podcast today and being able to speak to someone in a, a company as transformational as Humana is in health value. And Mike's really the guy that brings about the thought leadership and serves as the voice of the provider, really putting his clinical thinking and leadership in a context in which he can represent the voice of the industry and spread that throughout the entire enterprise. I just really am impressed with the thinking and the contribution and leadership of Mike Funk and really think our listeners are going to enjoy hearing about some of the great work being done there at Humana. I totally agree, Eric. You know, with 40 years of experience in the healthcare industry, it's obvious that he comes with a vast knowledge. He's held executive positions in hospital administration, physician practice management, managed care, insurance products, health and wellness services, and more. Such a great guest to have on our podcast and really privileged to have him with us today. And Mike has been a, a long-standing member of the ACLC, and we always appreciate that collaboration. And right, right. I'm excited to have him on. So let me go ahead and hand it over to Mike Funk, Vice President, Office of Health Affairs and Advocacy for Humana, and joining us today in this race to value. Hello, Mike. Welcome to Race to Value. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Ray. Glad to be here. Well, Mike, as we start our conversation today, I thought a good place to start would be to discuss how COVID-19 has forever upended the healthcare industry as we know it. The pandemic, it seems, has just really prompted this reckoning throughout the entire healthcare infrastructure and shattered decades-old assumptions about how Americans in the insurance industry conceives of medicine. COVID-19 is going to have long-standing effects and consumer expectations which will change how care is ultimately paid for and what type of care is deemed appropriate. And as we think about this consumer disruption caused by this black swan event, there is no greater example to point to than the acceleration of telemedicine. Healthcare providers in the US have been inching towards making more services available via telehealth for years, 
but the pandemic really seems to have pushed the inevitable telemedicine revolution forward by a decade, if not more. Just before the pandemic started, for example, the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions collaborated with the American Telemedicine Association to survey the industry, and they found that 50% of healthcare executives thought at least a quarter of all outpatient care Preventative care, long-term care, and well-being services would be moved to virtual delivery by 2040. So that was a survey that came out in January, and a quarter of all those services being delivered by virtual delivery by 2040. And I think if you were to conduct that same survey today, just seven months later, that response would be more like 100% of those executives would think that at least a quarter of that care will be delivered virtual by next year. So I'm just thinking about this hyper acceleration of telemedicine adoption, and it's just mind-blowing. And I recall uh, seeing Bruce Bassard, the Humana CEO, on TV, and there was a quote that he said, the virus is giving acceleration into some trends and that it's really opening the healthcare system and allowing more convenient settings. We're going to see a different healthcare system as a result of the virus. And that is going to end up in being something that's going to create a redistribution in how we deliver care. So, Mike, can you provide our listeners with some insights about what you're seeing in current trends in telehealth as a result of COVID-19 and how this is impacting the healthcare delivery ecosystem? Yeah, happy to do that, Eric. First, if I can just make a few introductory comments, I would start by thanking you and the ACLC for the opportunity to talk with you about our experiences in navigating COVID. These are certainly challenging times, to say the least, and I think they're obviously impacting everyone, patients, our members, certainly our associates, as well as healthcare leaders, to just name a few. Not only are we dealing with our work lives, but things like back to school, I think general exhaustion that we're all feeling from all the pressures that we're confronted with, as well as a result of this pandemic. I do believe that with these challenges, we're also presented with opportunities, and I hope that becomes apparent as we talk here today. Certainly unprecedented times call for unprecedented actions, and our goal during the pandemic has really been to get out of the way and not interfere with our physicians' care for their patients. That's why our primary focus in recent months have really been about removing barriers and improving access to healthcare services, and MA plans were some of the first to adjust to this new normal. Specific to your question on telehealth, like I think everyone, we saw a dramatic increase at the height of the lockdown. We went from probably a thousand telehealth visits a month to I think at our peak, we were well over a million. And you know, certainly in the hundreds of thousands of individual telehealth visits that took place. This capability certainly provided access to our members and providers, their patients at a time when access to office care was unavailable. It also provided a way in which we could continue to keep some revenue flowing into the practices, recognizing the cash flow constraints that our providers were up against. You know, I had flashbacks, having been in this business for now going on 40 years, about all the conversations over the years that we've had about telehealth, yet it had been slow to gain any real traction. The pandemic was the catalyst for certainly jump-starting and mainstreaming telehealth. And it seemed to really happen overnight. In fact, our digital health team, which has focused on strengthening our virtual care platform even before the outbreak, said the work to necessitate telehealth is an effective and efficient primary means of care that really meant 
we moved from five to 10 years of technology adoption happening in two to three months. Since the height of the initial public health emergency, volumes have retreated, and I think that has been consistent within the industry with the opening up back up of practices, but they have not returned to pre-COVID levels, nor do I really expect them to. I think it's possible we could see spikes around hotspots as the pandemic continues. Now that the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, I expect telehealth to play a much larger role in access to care. And many of our frontline providers tell us the same thing. I think now what we need to do is really just understand the services that can benefit from telehealth. I know that we did see a few services, I don't think a lot, that were somewhat questionable in terms of needing perhaps more hands-on care. So I think we just need to think more and understand more about those services that truly can benefit from the telehealth. Telehealth can never replace in-person care, but certainly I think it can complement it as we've seen. And additionally, we still have some limitations with technology. Certainly we saw bandwidth issues as well as access to the technology itself. This was probably most prevalent in rural areas, although I don't think it was necessarily immune in our urban areas. To help eliminate the barriers for members and increase access for MA members, Humana's teamed with a nonprofit organization, Older Adults Technology Services, also known as OATS, to get more than a million seniors online with improved technology to access and engagement. OATS recently received a $3 million investment from our Humana Foundation, the philanthropic arm of Humana Inc. to establish and lead a consortium for accessible internet connections for older adults. Age On will focus on getting at least 1 million disconnected seniors online, particularly those in marginalized communities, and will support equitable access to technology, helping our older adults access critical digital health tools and maintain social connectedness. CMS seems to have recognized the increased need for telehealth and is working to address some of the challenges, especially in rural areas. We saw some creativity from our physicians. We actually received a image of a parking sign from one of our practices where they had actually reserved a parking spot at the door to the practice so that when patients arrived, they called or texted their arrival and the office would actually come out and bring iPads in which the member could conduct their telehealth visit. So those are just a few things, Eric, that we've personally seen around telehealth and some of the ways that we're going about in terms of addressing some of the barriers that have been identified as a result of it. Mike, I love what you've portrayed about the technological advancements that have occurred around telehealth. And obviously, Humana is doing a lot in this regard. And as we think about other technological advancements that need to happen as we transition the healthcare industry towards value-based payment, it seems like the holy grail of value is interoperability. The ability to aggregate and share clinical information across different networks of hospitals and physician practices, it's an important tool in the transition to value because data becomes central to tracking success of these payment models. It's a big issue that we need to coalesce around as an industry, and I'm pleased to see Humana's taking an active role in that as well by helping providers improve interoperability and sharing clinical data with them. You were interviewed in Modern Healthcare a couple years back in 2018, and you stated that the transition toward value-based care was inevitable, and that Humana was committed to making sure its providers were well-equipped for that transition. It certainly seems to be the case as Humana has been a leading company in the Da Vinci Project, 
which is a private sector initiative focused on leveraging fire standards to improve data sharing. Additionally, last year, Humana became the first insurer to partner with Epic, with a primary aim of that collaboration being to advance interoperability and transparency between patients and providers. Can you describe more about the work that Humana is doing to lead the industry towards this interoperability advancement? And also, given this impact that you've been talking about with COVID-19, accelerating the industry toward value-based care, how does this strategic priority get bolstered in the next one to two years as we resettle in this new normal? Yeah, Daniel, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say while we're on technology, I did want to talk briefly about interoperability. You know, I heard mentioned several times as we navigated through this pandemic that we could have benefited substantially in this pandemic had we had ready access to patient information or more interoperable systems. This would have been a great asset, I think, for all parties, allowing us to be much more efficient and effective as an industry in this time of crisis by having had readily available patient information at the clinician's fingertips. An array of accessible information could have helped speed the determination of diagnosis, treatment plans, and when and where to make hospital referrals. I think the most obvious and simple example during COVID is test result interoperability. People are getting tested multiple times and in all kinds of places. Then they show up somewhere else for care or when they get sick. And all of that data for it to be, you know, accessible across the care continuum would have been really valuable because it would have given physicians insight into those test results and previous diagnosis and treatment plans. We know that problems with patient data sharing can impact treatments. As a member of the Da Vinci steering team, which you brought up, which for those who don't know, it's a public-private collaboration made up of providers, vendors, payers to advance interoperability via use cases and the development of implementation guides. I am and continue to be optimistic that we will see a renewed focus on this work, much like we saw in telehealth, where this pandemic is actually serving as a catalyst to advance our interoperable work. It's certainly much needed to improve patient outcomes, quality, and lower overall health costs. You did mention EPIC, and I would say in addition to EPIC, we are working with ECW, Athena Health, just to name a few, to implement a number of these use cases to advance interoperability, creating a more integrated healthcare delivery system, and helping to bring this much-discussed capability to life. Currently with EPIC, we're connected to 10 hospitals, soon to be 11, and these connections will not automatically open up all information, but initially we'll be connected to things like hospital notification as we work on more transformational aspects like prior authorization, et cetera. Well, Mike, I also wanted to ask you about the stabilization of physician practices with COVID-19. It just seems that physician practices are really compromised in the ongoing pandemic and Primary care is especially vulnerable to the deleterious economic effects of COVID-19 since most of their revenue still comes from in-person visits, which have plummeted since March amid widespread stay-at-home orders and fears about in-office virus transmission. Recently, Health Affairs published a, a study from researchers at Harvard Medical School, and they were projecting that primary care practices were expected to lose about $15 billion because of this coronavirus pandemic. And a recent study conducted by the Primary Care Collaborative stated that a third of primary care practices don't feel ready to face the next six months. They lack enough cash on hand to stay open as the virus continues to surge. 
And it seems that fee for service, it just simply isn't a system that's conducive or amenable for physician practices to thrive in this new normal. When visits get disrupted for any reason, and combine that with the fact that the majority of physician practices have low cash reserves or no reserves at all, you have these practices that are just existing on a month-to-month basis, and they don't really have any prospective form of predictable population-based payment. And that really puts them at risk of not being able to survive. And I know there's widespread discussion in the industry that we can't continue to subject physician practices to a continuation of normal market forces that have persisted predominantly in a fee-for-service driven industry. We must be looking for solutions to stabilize the physician practice community. So given the current plight of independent physician practices, how is Humana thinking about health value and how it can create a more sustainable financial model, both in terms of industry reform as well as physician practice viability. So, you know, Eric, I mentioned in my introductory comments, one of our very important goals was to help ensure the stabilization of the physician practice. I think many of our practices are challenged as a result of the COVID pandemic. As previously mentioned, allowing access to telehealth services when offices are closed not only helped to provide access to our members, physicians, and patients, but it also helped to maintain the cash flow for the practice. This allowed those value-based providers to focus on checking in with their patients and managing their conditions rather than scrambling to figure out how to generate revenue to keep their doors open. Additionally, we looked at ways to accelerate payments to the tune of around a billion dollars to date. That included reducing administrative burdens by lifting PA requirements at the height of the pandemic, waiving co-pays for members to encourage access to care. What we also saw was a stark difference between the fee-for-service practice and our risk-based providers. The risk-based model provided somewhat of a guaranteed revenue stream versus that of fee-for-service. I recently read an article in Medical Economics where Dr. Mustasheri with Alidaid was actually quoted as advocating for embracing risk or value-based care given the stability provided under these particular models. So I do think that with the pandemic, with some of the differences we saw between fee-for-service and value-based, we may see a more rapid embracement of the value-based models simply because of the economic stability that many of our providers saw provided to them in this particular pandemic. Well, Mike, I'm pleased to hear that Humana has really been thinking critically about this important issue, and I'd have to agree that it just seems like the stage is set for even more widespread proliferation of value-based payment models. Another aspect of primary care that I see Humana is really taking an active interest in is how to transform that sector into something that's more relationship-driven, preventative, tech-enabled, and higher-touch where interdisciplinary teams can work together to improve health outcomes. And it seems like this level of outcomes accountability can only happen in a capitated environment with groups that are experienced in risk and can readily embrace innovation in their care delivery models. And Humana is making great advancements in this area of primary care transformation. For example, I see that the private equity-backed expansion of Humana's senior-focused subsidiary partners in primary care, which is your medical group that seems to be getting a lot of attention right now. And last fall, there was a partnership expansion with Iora Health. And another outstanding partnership that Humana has had has been with Oak Street Health. 
they've been creating a lot of buzz in the industry over the last few years. And I was just reviewing their SEC filing when they went public last month. And I was interested to see how Humana provided them their biggest capitated contract. I believe it was around 49% of their revenue. And there was also representation from Humana on the Oak Street Health Board of Directors. And then, of course, Humana just placed $100 million investment in Heal, which is a primary care startup which offers on-demand primary care, physician house calls, virtual visits, and patient monitoring in seven states. So needless to say, Humana really seems to have an ever-growing primary care delivery portfolio, and it's fully committed to high-touch primary care because of the role it plays in value. So can you speak to how high-touch primary care fits into Humana's overall strategy and ultimately how Humana is evolving from being just an insurance company to really more of a comprehensive healthcare company? Sure, happy to do that, Eric. As you know, from our longstanding relationship with the ACLC, we started out our value-based transformation being very primary care centric. That's not changed, but over the years, we have evolved our value-based product portfolio to include specialty bundles, things like joint replacement, spine, and maternity as examples. Our strategy has evolved to creating a value-based care ecosystem that is personalized, proactive, and predictive for our members, along with an integrated, interoperable, and coordinated delivery system leading to better outcomes. The ecosystem is focused on the PCP, home, pharmacy, behavioral health, and social determinants of health, creating what we refer to as an omni-channel approach, providing care when and where needed. We're seeing an increased demand for home care services because it's where members want to remain and be cared for. This was the case even before the pandemic. Thus, our investments in this space with Kindred and our recent investment in HEAL that you referenced, which utilized telehealth technology and also sends a physician into the home providing emergency and hospital level care in the home. The optionality mentioned further with partners like Iora and Oak Street Models along with our own care delivery organization, which includes partners in primary care, provides value-based care in underserved areas. Recently, we announced the expansion in Houston, Las Vegas, and Shreveport, Louisiana. So when Bruce Brizard, our CEO, talks about moving from an insurance company with elements of healthcare to a healthcare company with elements of insurance, hopefully this strategy and review around primary care, as well as our five tenants of primary care, the home, et cetera, provide a better understanding of how we're going about this as an organization. Mike, I love the term you used, omni-channel, and talking about the healthcare organization with elements of insurance in it. And it really speaks to your commitment to quality to, for the patients and improving community outcomes. You mentioned SDOH is one of those elements. And Addressing the needs of the whole person really seems to be a major objective in your strategy. And I think that's really well illustrated by the Humana's Bold Goal Initiative, which is a population health strategy to improve the health of communities by 20%. And by co-creating solutions to address SDOH and health-related social needs for your members and communities, Humana's taking a lead role in tackling upstream root causes of poor health in three primary areas, which include tackling food insecurity, addressing loneliness and social isolation, as well as improving transportation. Can you explain more for our listeners about the work Humana is doing to improve the quality of care and outcomes for the most vulnerable populations in our society? 
Sure, happy to do that, Daniel. Patient quality has been impacted in a variety of ways. Going back to our value-based providers, the fee-for-service system really is insufficient for the most vulnerable Americans because it's limited payments as to what goes on inside the physician office. What we see in value-based care, when implemented effectively, it encourages a clinician to treat the whole person, reaching out to close gaps in care, providing preventative services, addressing social risks, as you mentioned, examples of that, food insecurity, loneliness, issues with transportation and access to healthcare. The most vulnerable and those at high risk are those members or patients with chronic conditions. This was recently called out by CMS, providing an early snapshot of COVID-19 and its impact on the Medicare population. I believe it was a July 22nd article. We're working with the Medical Group Management Association on a study to better understand the impacts of diverted care that have taken place where people have been afraid to go into a medical practice or outside to seek services because of the fear of contracting COVID, as an example. We're also looking closely at things like medication adherence, and we provided members with early refill opportunities to ensure that they had access to their medications. We alone have reached out to some 1.2 million members, our most vulnerable, to ensure continuity of care. We've distributed care kits, including masks and at-home test kits for those MA members who are overdue for certain preventive screenings, just to provide a few examples. I really appreciate the response. Obviously, you've been thoughtful about an appropriate response and actions for caring for the most vulnerable in our society. It seems like there are two primary challenges that we face in care delivery for these individuals, one being social determinants of health, which is an absolute necessity, but also we need to ensure that health equity and reduction of disparities in care is addressed for these populations. I think back to a podcast interview we did a few months ago with Edwin Estevez, the CEO of RGVACO. And he has a really vulnerable population on the Texas-Mexico border. There's manifestation of disease that in that predominantly Hispanic population, and it's so much more heightened than what you would see in other parts of the country. In the current pandemic, communities of color, as you mentioned, we're, we're seeing that they're being hit disproportionately hard by COVID-19 due to inadequate access to testing, And for those that do get tests and do get treatments, there's a much higher death rate among African-Americans, revealing even further inequity. Research such as the one you mentioned has been able to irrefutably show that if you control for all variables that contribute to health disparities like education, income, access to health insurance, African-Americans get the worst quality health care of any demographic in the country. In our Accountable Care Atlas, we actually paid attention to the disparities issue and wrote a competency about it that says, quote, understand the unique cultural characteristics of the population served to implement changes in the organization to provide high value care. So Humana seems to be thinking a great deal about addressing disparities in efforts to support the industry transition of value. Can you provide our listeners with an overview of some of these initiatives that you're working on in this area? I think those of us in healthcare have known for some time that there are certainly disparities. I think the pandemic quickly brought to light the inequities within our healthcare system and shined a much brighter light on that, especially amongst the minority and low-income populations that you mentioned. 
be they African-American, Native Americans, which we've not heard a lot about, have certainly been impacted significantly along with Asian-Americans and to your point, the Hispanic population. I just read an article the other day, people of color make up 40% of the U.S. population, but account for as much as 52% of the deaths. Certainly, this creates an opportunity to better understand these disparities and act on them. It also places a brighter light on the work we're doing with social determinants of health and focusing on treating the whole person. You mentioned the Hispanics population and some of the issues down in Texas. Several years ago, we actually started a movement in San Antonio with local government and health-related agencies designed to improve the health of our members that we serve within the San Antonio area. And for many who may not be aware, the Hispanic population has a high incident within San Antonio of diabetes, and that was one of the main diseases that, that we focused on as we kicked this program off. The great thing about this movement is that while we were focused on our membership, the initiative did impact the broader community, and that effort has led to our expanded focus on social determinants of health, where today we have similar models in some 16 communities and growing. It's thought that some 60% of our overall health is directly related to social determinants. That can be the zip code in which we live, our ability to access health care, the ability to even access within your local community fresh fruits and vegetables, as well as social interaction, to name just a few. All the more reason we recognize the need for social determinants of health to be in integrated into our value-based models of care. We kicked off a pilot, and there's actually a couple of pilots that we have going now, but we kicked off a pilot with Oshner Healthcare in Louisiana to determine how we best actually did the integration of social determinants of health. And that pilot start, has started with screening just for social determinants of health, and then we'll expand that based upon our learnings. In preparing for this podcast, I actually checked in with our folks to see if we were far enough along with our pilot to be able to produce any results, and it's still a bit early to do that, but we'll continue to follow that and hopefully at some point can update you on that. Through the second quarter of this year, we've made available to our members some 900,000 meals. One of the things that we found is that when many of our members were calling during this pandemic, we were finding that they were in need of food. So our response was to figure out how we got them the food items they needed. Now, some of this was affordability. Some of it was actually back to the issue of they were afraid to leave their homes for fear of contracting COVID, but it was a great need that was identified. Humana also has donated $150 million to the Humana Foundation to make meaningful community investments to get after health disparities in our communities. And we're also hiring a health equity officer for the company to really focus on healthcare inequities, to better understand the data and the drivers so we can work to improve care for those who are disadvantaged today. Well, Mike, as I think about this race to value that we're in, I, I just can't help but think about the national debt and the economic imperative that's being placed on us in our country right now. And ACLC co-founder, Governor Mike Levitt, he stated that we're 25 years into a 40-year transition when it comes to moving the industry towards value-based care. It simply just takes that long to fundamentally reform 20% of our economy. And Governor Levitt talks about the early stages of value-based care from when it started in 1990, when Medicare adopted DRGs, and then by the mid-90s, 50% of commercial lives were in managed care. 
and we had this managed care era with HMOs ultimately losing favor in the court of public opinion. And since then, we've had the passage of MMA in 2003, and then Governor Levitt became HHS secretary in 2005, and value became part of the healthcare lexicon. And then since that time, we've had the passage of ACA, which created accountable care organizations. We had the overwhelmingly bipartisan passage of MACRA in 2017. So in this transition to health value, the governor talks about how we need to balance human compassion with global economic leadership. And simply put, he thinks about how we need economic leadership to ensure compassionate delivery of healthcare. Even in the beginning of our podcast, in the intro, Governor Levitt says, we're in this race to make value work because of the economic imperative to do so. And our federal spending it increasing at such a, a staggering rate, coupled with you know mounting national debt, especially when you account for all the trillions being added, you know, with COVID-19 and our response. And I mean, I'm just thinking about how this transition of value-based care, it really is one of the most important economic challenges our country has ever faced. So can you provide your insights on how the national debt crisis is impacting this race to value and what discussions are taking place at Humana to provide our country with the solution to this alarming cost trajectory that our healthcare economy is currently on at the moment. Funny, Eric, that you mentioned Governor Levitt. For years, you know, I've listened intently to him talk about his views on our transformation from fee-for-service to value. And he has this wonderful story about this 40-year journey that we're all on, and we're some 26 or so years into that journey. And he always talked about that black swan event that you started the podcast out with. And I can't tell you how many times I've reflected on this at the onset of the pandemic and even today. I certainly think that this has the potential to rapidly shift the way we are organized today. Healthcare is pushing nearly 20% of the GNP. Billions have gone into fighting COVID, as we all know. And we've been impacted economically from COVID as a country, all leading certainly to these uncertain economic times. In addition, it was announced recently that the Social Security Trust Fund would be exhausted even sooner than thought. I think the last data I saw, if I remember correctly, maybe had that expiring sometime in 23 or 24, as opposed to what might have been 26 or a little later. Meanwhile, the over 65 population is expected to double in the next four decades. So all of this is going to continue to add tremendous pressure on how we pay for healthcare as it consumes such a large portion of the GMP. Value-based care appears to be the most viable solution. Of course, there's more work to be done here. I would not say by any stretch that we are finished that work. I would say we're probably early on, but I think we're seeing some good results early on. Currently, Humana, we see nearly a $1,600 savings annually over traditional Medicare plans. And if anything, COVID, I think, has brought more transparency to the importance of this model going forward. And we'll need to pay special attention as the, our economic state becomes even clearer. Mike, we're talking about a massive transformation to our healthcare system, one that's been catalyzed by COVID-19 and one that obviously is going to require a lot more effort, as you're suggesting. And I think a great way to wrap up our conversation today would be to talk about how we accomplish that. And here at the ACLC, we, we really believe that value in healthcare will begin and end with the competency of the team, with the workforce. And so 
developing the workforce, educating, reskilling the workforce is a central component to the success of the value-based care movement. Humana's been a longtime member of the ACLC. I've known you the whole time that I've been involved with it over these four and a half years. And, and you share a commitment to workforce development. And two years ago, Humana invested $15 million into a new medical school at the University of Houston with the intent to integrate population health into the medical education and curriculum. And since 2018, the Humana Integrated Health System Science Institute at the University of Houston has kickstarted more than 15 academic programs and provided 10,000 hours of interdisciplinary medical education to 6,000 people, including students, faculty, staff, and even Humana associates. Can you provide your perspective on the ACLC as, as I mentioned, as being one of the founding members and how that's formed Humana's thinking on workforce development for health value? And also, can you provide a high-level update on the work being done out of the University of Houston at the Humana Institute? Yeah, Daniel, I think workforce development is a perfect way to wrap up this conversation. As you know and you alluded to, we've worked together for a number of years and we were a founding member, as you well know, of the ACLC and very much appreciate all the good work that this organization has done and continues to do in supporting and collaborating around industry learning. Our work at the University of Houston Medical School Initiative has helped the University of Houston first and foremost to stand up a medical school and to collaborate with other health schools already in place there Our schools such as nursing, optometry, pharmacy, and social work. But maybe more importantly, a medical school designed to train its physicians on value-based care in an effort to redesign healthcare for vulnerable and underserved communities, providing diverse individuals with educational opportunities in the medical field. Research backs up that individuals take counsel and advice from physicians who resemble them and understand their views. Additionally, certification training will be available to other clinicians and non-clinicians through virtual online learning programs to develop the healthcare workers of today and the future, making the transition from fee-for-service thinking to that of value-based care that's more data-driven, whole-person care, including the impact of social determinants of health. We can't keep doing the same things and expect different results. So we had to begin to think differently, and our support of the University of Houston Medical School, as well as the education for other clinicians, is beginning to think differently in the hopes that we will see different outcomes. Mike, thank you for joining us today in this race to value. Thank you, Eric. We really enjoyed having you today, Mike. For our listeners out there that want to know more about Humana's industry leadership and health value, where can they find more information? Eric, I have a couple of links that I will send to you that perhaps you can share with listeners after this podcast. Wonderful. We'd be happy to do so. And we look forward to a continued collaboration in this race to value. Thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. 